Well, good morning, church. It's great to see you. Uh, if we haven't met, my name's Bill, and I'm just really thankful to be here with you this morning and have a chance to open God's Word together with you. Um, if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to 1 John, uh, the letter of 1 John. It's right before uh, the book of Revelation. There's Revelation, then Jude, and then there's 1st through 3rd John, so we'll be in the first of those three letters. Uh, we're also going to spend a little time in the Gospel of John, which is after Matthew, Mark, and Luke, okay? So don't get confused. Those are two different books written by the same dude, so, um, but you don't have to turn there. <clears throat> Okay, so this week we're introducing our Christmas series called Nativity. And when we think of nativity, maybe some images pop into your head. You know, maybe uh, some antique nativity display that was in one of your family's homes. Uh, Maybe a grandparent or something like that. Something that was just unique and you weren't allowed to touch when you were a kid. Um, Or maybe, for some of you, it might be something, you know, from popular culture like Kevin McAllister hiding from the wet bandits in front of the church. Uh, if you haven't seen the movie Home Alone, I can't help you out. But Kevin is hiding on the right there in the uh, curtain that he tore down. So, pretending to be a shepherd. <clears throat> so, the actual definition of the word nativity is... Oh, there we go. We're, we're just flying right now. I'm just, we're going to talk about it all. Done. All right, here we go. I don't know. There we go. Okay. <laughs> we're good now. It's the occasion of a person's birth. And in this case, we're celebrating Jesus' birth, right? Uh-huh. But why do we make such a big deal about it? Why do we spend a whole month kind of building up towards this? You know, the early church, they didn't have an annual celebration of the birthday of Jesus. But they did continually celebrate the reality that Jesus came in the flesh. And the word for that is the incarnation. Coming in the flesh. They continually were in awe of the fact that God took on flesh in Christ. So they didn't celebrate the event of it as much as the fact that Jesus came. And they celebrated that throughout the year. So let's look at the Gospel of John, chapter 1, to see why. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So just a clarifying thing. Every time John uses the word in caps right here. He's referring to Jesus, okay? So, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the right right hand of the Father, he has made him known. So John tells us a few really significant things here in this passage of Scripture that we need to know before we move forward about Jesus. The first thing is this. That Jesus 
is God. The Word was God. John could not be more clear in the way that he phrased this. If you go to the original language and even right here, it's just plain as day the way that he was phrasing it. There's no mistaking. Jesus is God. And God became flesh. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, this is not the way any of us would have written the story. If it were up to us, we were making this thing up, we would not have said, okay, let's take the Almighty God and for his arrival into this world, let's make him a baby. Right? That's not how we would have done it. A helpless, frail, little human being. You know, when my oldest daughter, Ella, was first born, uh, I remember the thought keeping me up at night that her staying alive was up to me right? Every little breath or stopping of her breath or pause in her breath through the baby monitor, I'd be like, is she alive? You know, I'd be freaking out. And just the the reality that she was so completely dependent on us as parents for her survival was almost overwhelming. But that's how Jesus chose to come as a baby. That was God's plan. He couldn't feed himself. He couldn't soothe himself, couldn't clothe himself. All he could do was lay there and cry. And don't try and give me the no crying he makes business because I'm not buying it, right? (laughs) I've seen too many kids. And then the third point is this. Jesus is the perfect revelation of the grace and truth of God. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. That word came there means came into being. It came into existence through Jesus. He was the perfect picture of the grace and truth of God. And he revealed God more clearly than the law ever could. So what? So what did God accomplish in sending Christ in the flesh? What was he trying to do? Well, I'm so glad you asked. We're going to spend the rest of our time talking about that. You know, in the world, our struggle day by day, moment by moment, is trying to find our identity, trying to prove our identity. And you see here in John 1.12 that God says... That we have an identity to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave us the right to become children of God. And so we have this, these two kind of conflicting ideas. We have this reality that we are children of God and we have the things that we try to do in this world to prove ourselves and to establish our identity around us, right? And the three things that the world uses and tells us that we need to be defined by are this, what we do what we have, and what others say about us, right? You can make the argument here that every conflict in this world, every war in this world, every struggle comes down to one of these three things at the root. Some ruler trying to prove that he's something. Some country trying to do that kind of thing, you know. Uh, Some friend trying to gain power over somebody else. I think it all comes down to these three things. And 1 John two sixteen, John kind of points to these things. He says, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride and possessions is not from the Father, but is from this world. Uh, the NIV, uh, the old NIV, uh, when I first started trying to memorize Scripture, said that uh, the boasting in what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from this world. Uh, it's another way to translate this passage. But you see these, these areas kind of showing up way back then. And it's, I think it's been 
over the course of human history, we have had this struggle. So the first of these is what we do, okay? Um, When we define ourselves by what we do, we're looking at our accomplishments. We're looking at our abilities. We're looking at our wins and losses, our successes and failures. Uh, We're looking at our trophies. If maybe we're getting to the point where we can't really do a whole lot anymore, we look back and say, hey, look at all the stuff that I did. Look at the awards that I won or the trophies that I got for the things that I did. And if we feel good about those things, then, you know, we celebrate those things for other people and in front of other people. But if we don't feel so good about those, we tend to feel jealous or look to what other people can do and wish that we could do those things. Say, oh man, if I can only do that, then I'd be good. Then I'd have an identity that I could be happy with. The second is what we have. This is when we find our identity maybe in our social groups, in our friends, in our families. We look to our family and say, look what they, look how great this family is. This must say something great about me and make me look really good. We look to our position or our power or our authority in our jobs. We look to possessions and property. Those are kind of the obvious ones when we talk about what we have, right? Uh, but then you have things like autonomy. You know, being your own boss is celebrated as this big thing. So once you have that, you're like, yeah, I've arrived now. I've, I'm my own boss. I'm in control of my life. Maybe it's your health. And you cling to that and you celebrate that as, as a thing that really defines you. Or on the flip side, you could maybe look to your pain and your suffering and say, this is, this is the defining characteristic of my life. The third and final area is what others say about us. And this is when we look to our reputation, to acclaim or praise. We look to how we're being accepted in a group or rejected and criticized on the opposite side. And we allow those things, the way people's words hold sway and power in our lives, we allow those things to define us. And I think these, uh, these words and the things that people say about us, I think those carry the most weight in our lives because it's not just a moment-by-moment thing. It's not just what's happening now, but it could be a voice that comes from your past that you've been trying to get out from under its shadow. Maybe, maybe a parent said something to you when you were young and you've spent your entire life trying to prove them wrong and prove that that's not true about you. Uh, maybe it's someone else who was close to you or just had some weight in your life. Words have power in our lives, and they they stick around longer than we would like, don't they? But the result of trying to find our identity in these three areas, it's a roller coaster, right? It's a roller coaster of pride and shame. When things are going well, when we have a lot of stuff, and we have the things that we've wanted, and people are saying great things about us, and we're able to do a lot of good stuff, we feel pride. We start to compare ourselves against others, and we feel pretty good about ourselves. Like, I got this figured out. And then when that stuff gets taken away, when we're no longer able to do something, we get injured or we lose a job or whatever. Uh, we don't have the stuff that we used to have. There's a big loss and stuff is taken away from us. Or people start saying negative or critical things about us. We start to feel shame. We start to move towards depression. So I call this the roller coaster of pride and shame. And I present to you the roller coaster of pride and shame. Just take those in for a minute. Sorry, I couldn't resist. When I knew I was going to say something about a roller coaster, I had to find good pictures. That poor girl on the right. My goodness. I was talking with Wyatt earlier. He said it looked like someone from The Exorcist. So, 
But that's, that's the reality for us, right? Sometimes it's terrifying, sometimes it's really thrilling, and sometimes it's, we don't know what it is. But we're just up and down constantly, and it's not meant to be that way. It's not who we're meant to live, and I think we all know that deep down. We know that it's killing us and eating our lunch. And even when things are good, we're miserable and fearful because we're afraid that the other shoe's going to drop. We're waiting for something to be taken from us, something to fall apart, something to go wrong. And we try to hedge our bets to protect ourselves against that happening. And we're just trying to cling to these things that we've built our identity on. I think we do this because deep down we all really long to be loved. I think that's, that's at the root of all this stuff. And what we're trying to do when we're trying to craft this identity for ourselves is we're trying to make it easier for people to love us. We're trying to make ourselves someone that people want to love and want to be around. And we don't feel like we have that in and of ourselves, so we're trying to shape ourselves in such a way that, you know, I'm going to make sure I have some people who love me, and so I'm going to do everything in my power to make that happen. You know, maybe I've been a part of something cool or made something, and I put it out on social media with the ulterior motive, really, though, of getting praise from people and to feel better about myself. Or maybe uh, I share a picture of something I did for my wife or my kids to show what a great dad or husband I am. You know, and then you keep checking back for the next thumbs up and then being disappointed when more people haven't responded and reacted and more people haven't shown how jealous they are of your life, right? We just play this comparison game. Constant cycle of ups and downs. And really, it gets ridiculous if we really start paying attention to just how, how much and how quickly it changes. And there's a whole billion-dollar industry that capitalizes on this compulsion that we have to prove our identities to people and to compare ourselves against other people. And while technology can be a a great tool to leverage for the sake of the gospel and for building others up and for loving on people and encouraging people, oftentimes we just settle for using it for the comparison game, don't we? You know, it's funny with with, uh, us as people, one of the things that's kind of come to my attention over the last couple of years is that oftentimes the things that I do to try and get the thing that I want most in life actually sabotages the whole thing. And let me give you an example for that. For me, just my wiring, my personality, uh, one of the things that I crave most in life is to be understood by people. So the way I go about doing that is I withdraw from people to go get prepared and to learn as much as I can, to process as much as I can, to get input as much as I can, so that when the time comes, I can explain myself fully and be understood. So in order to be understood by people and to connect with people, I withdraw from people. How's that working out for you, Bill? Right? (laughs) So I think we all have these things that we try to do, and actually they backfire on us. But Jesus provided a way out of this pattern, a way off of this roller coaster. And we find these answers in the letter of 1 John, which is where we're going to turn now. In this letter, John tells his readers what their new identity in Christ means for them, what they need to know about it. The first thing he shows us is that where we used to define ourselves by what we do, we can now stand on the truth that it is finished. Christ has done it all for us. Let's take a look at 1 John 2, 1 and 2. It says this, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. 
He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And then in chapter 4, verses 9 to 10, it says this. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. In these two passages, we see that John is telling us that Jesus is our advocate. He is our propitiation. He is our atoning sacrifice, the one that fully satisfies God's righteous requirements for our lives. He does it completely. Jesus represents us before the Father. He stands in our place. So when God the Father looks at us, he sees us through Christ. If we are in Christ, he sees us as righteous in Christ, dressed in the righteousness of Jesus. Jesus comes to our side, comes to our aid, and accomplishes everything that we need for eternity. So when God sees us, we can rest fully in what Christ has done for us and on our behalf. So rather than striving in our own flesh to prove and define our identity by what we can do, we can now walk by the Spirit of God who empowers us, who dwells in us, helping us to live out the commands that God has given us. Look at 1 John 5, 3. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Why are they not burdensome? He hasn't lightened what he's expected of us, but instead he's given us everything we need to get it done. He's given us all the strength, all the power, but the spirit who dwells in us and works in us to even obey the commandments of God. So both our status before God and our ongoing actions in obedience to Christ, both of those things are done for us by the work of God. He's accomplished it for us, and he is working in and through us, even to obey. And so continuing on that idea, John tells us that where we used to define ourselves by what we have, now for everything we need, it is given. Look back at 1 John 4, 9 and 10. The redemption that we have, the new life that we have, it's a gift of God. It was given to us before we ever loved him. It's a free gift. Now look at... 1 John 4, uh, 5, 4-5. It says, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So John's telling us that by faith, when we believe that Jesus is the Son of God, who lived a perfect life, who died on the cross for our sins, and who rose again victorious over sin and death, that we are born of God. And then from there, when we are born of God, we overcome the world. And when John talks about the world, he's talking about kind of the system of beliefs and structures and whatnot. We have overcome those things. We've overcome this old way of defining ourselves, and we are brought into a new way of living. Second Peter 1.3 continues with this idea. He says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. We have everything we need for life and godliness through Christ. Paul adds to that in Ephesians 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We have everything we need, every spiritual blessing in Christ. So now we walk by faith and not by sight. You know, we've received a gift that 
we could not tangibly see, we can't hold it, we can't touch it, but it radically alters our day-by-day living. I had a professor named Jimmy Dukes in seminary, and um, Jimmy Dukes is just an awesome name, isn't it? Uh, and he was from Mississippi. I mean, it was perfect. Just, it all matched. But, uh, so he's, he was just a great Greek professor. And every time we would go through First John, every time we would come across the phrase eternal life, he would make sure to emphasize that when John says eternal life, he's not talking only about a length of life, a quantity of life, but he's talking about a certain quality of life. The eternal life we receive is not just a long life, but one that is of a different kind, one that is of the kind of heaven. And that life has invaded our own life and it changes us from the inside out. And so our lives begin to look like heaven in the way that we live here and now. We've been given a different kind of life through Christ. And we have that by faith alone. And then finally, John tells us what God says about us. And what he says about us supersedes anything that anyone in this world can say about us. Take a look at 1 John 3.1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. We are called children of God because of Christ. You are a beloved child of God because of Christ. You're no longer a slave or a servant, but an adopted son or daughter. And with that standing, there's a difference. You know, my children, no matter how foolishly they might behave... No matter what they may say to me, no matter where they go, no matter what. And my youngest one in the middle there is testing the boundaries of that statement. <laughs> oh, the stories I could tell about this one. I'm just going to let that soak in for a second. <laughs> but no matter what, they will always be my children. They can't undo that reality. They can't leave that reality. They can't make me not love them anymore. They're my kids. How much more so is that the case for our perfect, loving, heavenly Father, whom John says he is love. Not only that, when kids don't have to be afraid to approach me, to ask me for things, to sit by me, to tell me how they're feeling. You know, John says in 1 John 4, 18 and 19, that God's perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment. We don't have any punishment waiting for us anymore because Christ took it all upon himself. The righteous punishment against our sin has been dealt with in full at the cross. Christ paid it all for us. And so now we have a freedom that we couldn't have any other way. We can come boldly to the Father with everything that's on our hearts and minds. Not fearful for what he might do, but just openly coming to him and trusting in him and finding a peace that goes beyond anything we can understand because of the perfect love of God for us. So since the Father has brought us in and adopted us, and since he has the final word in our lives, and since that's not due to anything we've done for ourselves We have no reason to boast in ourselves, and we walk in humility, not in pride. We are children of God, not of the flesh or the will of man, but of God alone.
So there was a man named Henry Nouwen, and he's someone that um, I've really grown to appreciate over the years. Uh, he's someone who's written quite a few books, and I had read several of his books before I started really finding out more about his story. And Nouwen was this great up-and-coming speaker and preacher, uh, thinker in the Christian faith, and was really sought after for his insight. And as I began to kind of see more of his story, I started to understand why, you know, towards the end of his life, it really felt like he was really getting to the heart of the matter in walking with Christ and what it means to, to have a relationship with the Lord. And part of the reason was, in the midst of all this stuff, he had awards and books and praise and acclaim from all kinds of people. He was a professor at Harvard. Uh, he was studying at Menninger's here for a little while um, as part of his work. And then one day, he just suddenly left it all. Just gave it all up. And he moved to a place called Daybreak in Canada. And Daybreak is part of this community, this network of uh, basically places that provide spiritual community and meeting the physical needs for adults with special needs. And now one went to be the chaplain of Daybreak. So many of our students have been on a camp called Barnabas, uh, where you know, our students are assigned to young men and women who have special needs, and they help care for them throughout the week so they can have just an amazing week uh, of camp. And this was every day of the year for Nowen and those who work there at Daybreak. And Henry Nowen was assigned to work with a young man named Adam. And every morning, Nowen would wake up, bathe him, dress him, feed him, and help him do everything that he had to do throughout the day because he couldn't do it for himself. When he went to this community, uh, one of the realities that struck him was nobody knew about any of the books that he had written. Nobody cared what a great speaker he was. Nobody knew how well sought after he was in the speaking circles and whatnot. Nobody cared. All they cared about was, does Henry care for me? Does Henry love me? And this humbled Nowen. He began to see that he had been seeking his identity in all these things, and that's not where real relationship is found. That's not what our relationship with God is built on. And so in, in this act of him stepping down, I think we really do see a small little glimpse of what Christ has done for us. Philippians 2 talks about how Jesus Although he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And I think that reality is the difference between Christianity and every other world religion. You know, if you look at all the religions of the world, despite all the altruism and all the good rhetoric, ultimately what it comes down to in the very end is about looking out for number one. All the selflessness ultimately is to increase my status in the end, to get a better slot in reincarnation or to get a better spot in eternity, to, to increase my status. And this even creeps into some practices of Christianity where we're just trying to increase my own status in the end. But in biblical Christianity, we don't have to do that anymore because somebody else did. 
We don't have to look out for number one because Jesus did it for us. Jesus selflessly laid down his life, emptied himself for our redemption to give us everything we need in the sight of God. To be our righteousness, to be the one who empowers our daily walking and following after God. The one who makes it so we can be adopted as sons and daughters and brought into the family of God and given the inheritance together with him. He's given us everything, shared everything that he has with us so we don't have to look out for for ourselves. And what that frees us to do is to truly be selfless people, to lay down our lives for others without any expectation of getting anything from them in return. That's real love. If we are loving with the end in mind of getting something back from someone, that's not love. That's ultimately looking out for number one. And Jesus changed that for us. So let me tell you something. You don't have anything to earn or to prove in the eyes of God because Jesus did it all for you. And I'm going to say that one more time because I think we need to hear this. We need to hear it daily. (laughs) You don't have anything to earn or to prove in the eyes of God because Christ has done it all for you. And there's great freedom in that. So how, how do we have this gift of identity? How do we receive this gift of freedom? How do these things become true of us? How do we have the strength to let go of what we do, what we have, and what people say about us and cling to what God says about us? How do we become selfless the way Jesus was selfless for us? And John gives us a very simple answer. We find it in 1 John 5, 11 to 13. Now, John had just finished explaining all the things that testify that Jesus really was God in the flesh. He talks about the water and the blood and the spirit. And most of all, he says, God the Father said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then he goes on to this. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. And I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. You want to have freedom from the roller coaster? You want to know where you stand in this life and after this life is over? You want to know that you know that you have eternal life? John says, believe. Believe in the Son of God. Put all of your trust, all of your hope, all of your confidence in the finished work of Jesus for you. Because it is finished. He has done it all. It is given. He's given you everything you need for life and godliness. And because of him, the Father calls us beloved children. We are adopted into the family. What we need to do is we need to allow all the good, all the wins, all the great things that people say about us and all the bad stuff, all the losses, all the pain and suffering that we have in this life. We need to allow all of those things to point us back to this truth that the Father has called us his children and that is our identity. You are not what you have. You are not what you do. You are not what people say about you. You are a child of God because of Jesus and him alone. And all of this is made possible because of the nativity, because God took on flesh, because he humbled himself, became selfless for us, that we might partake in his life, that we might share in his identity as a child of God. 
And this time of year can be a wonderful reminder. It can get really busy and crazy. We can get caught up in the stuff. But I want to encourage you and, and pray for you that this would be a time of year where you really focus in on the gift that you have been given through Jesus coming. Through him humbling himself and giving us a picture of what it means to step down and to selflessly love others. He has done it all for you, church. What an amazing gift he is. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for the life that we have because of Jesus. The new life that we have in him. Thank you for the redemption and the adoption that we have through his work for us. Thank you that it doesn't rest on anything we've done for ourselves, that we can't pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and make ourselves more appealing to you. But Lord, Jesus is enough for us, and we can rest in what he has done and who he is for us. Lord, over these next few weeks, as we just spend time celebrating Jesus' birth, remind us why. Remind us that he has given us a new identity, that we get to share in being a child of God adopted sons and daughters and brought into the family for eternity. Thank you for your unfailing love for us, that you loved us when we didn't even think of loving you yet. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.